The minister's discretionary fund here has been in place, I think, for a good decade at this point. And over the years, uh, you all have been incredibly generous in funding that, and I've been able to help many, many people over the years out of some sticky situations. Normally, the calls I get come from other agencies in town who have a need they can't meet quite yet, and they know I have some money to help out, so I'll hear from JJAB or Firstborn or the victim's advocate at the police department or things like that. We have this thing, this immediate need, it's a one-time thing. Can you help out? Can you pay that? Yes, I can. Not too, too long ago, a little while back, I got a direct call from someone in need and this happens surprisingly less than you might expect. Direct to my office phone. Does your church help out people in need? Well, yes, we do. And in certain circumstances, yes. See, I'm living in my car right now. And this guy I know has a casita he can rent me, but I need to come up with a $500 security deposit today. Is that something you can do? Now, I've been burned before. So I was reluctant. But in the back of my head, I didn't want to say no right away. I wanted to be sure that the money I gave, if I gave it, was going to go to what it was being asked for. So how, how do I ensure that that happens? How can I make sure that the money is doing what I want it to do? And I thought maybe I could dip back into the greatest hits of the philanthropists of the last century when giving big bequests to colleges, universities, other nonprofit institutions, and put some kind of hitch in there. Uh, like the guy who, back in 1907, told Swarthmore College that was just getting off the ground, I will give you $3 million, which was sizable in 1907. I will give you $3 million, but you have to stop participating in all intercollegiate sports. And Swarthmore said, well, we need the money, but we also need students who want to play sports. And they ultimately turned that gift down. Uh, there was a story of a granddaughter of one of the founders of Quaker State Oil, who back in the late 60s uh, willed uh, $2.5 million to Auburn University. Uh, on the condition that they also uh, take over her dog ranch. She was addicted to adopting stray dogs and had a ranch with 150 of them on her property. And in order to get $2.5 million, Auburn University would have to rehome all of the dogs, which they did. So they got the money and they earmarked it for veterinary research. Ha ha. An alumna of Radcliffe University at a date I don't know once gifted the university with a rather gorgeous, rather 
expensive piece of jewelry, a jeweled necklace, with the stipulation that the jewelry was not to be turned into money. No, she was giving it to the university so that the president would wear it at every public function they were at. And a little more recently, back in about 2008, um, 2008, yes, at uh, University of Colorado, uh, a, a business graduate offered a gift of $25,000 to the university. Very modest, but still there was, a, there was a string attached to that gift. There had to be a plaque with some kind of motivational statement placed outside one of the men's rooms at the business school. The university took the money, and there is a motivational plaque outside the men's room at this particular, particular school. Uh, no, it, it said, here, here, here you go, <laughs> not just do it. The best ideas often come at inconvenient times. Don't ever close your mind to them. In the 19th century, the, uh, mill, the fabric mills in England would mark the imperfections in a bolt of fabric, and because everything was getting mechanized, it was, it was frequently imperfections in what was being woven. They would mark on the end of the bolt a little string where the imperfections were so people would know where to find them in the fabric. And if a clothier, it's say London, making custom suits, wanted to get their hands on a bolt of fabric that had no flaws in it so that they didn't have to waste time and energy working around something, they could just use the bolt, they would shop for fabric with no strings attached. With no strings attached. Today, we throw that phrase around to mean there are usually stipulations to a gift of some sort. And frequently, they are onerous, uh, unhelpful to the organization that is being given to. There is something unpleasant and unworkable in the gift in order for the gift to be given. It comes with strings. as all of our funny people in this list of university donations points up. The question is why? Why do we do this as a people? Why are there so many stipulations put on the gifts we give to the charities, to the organizations that we believe in, especially those who are possessed of the financial wherewithal to actually give two and a half, three million dollars, not me. Um, why is this? Researchers in the psychology of giving and, and researchers in the arts of fundraising have, have pegged that for the most part, at best, we want to be sure that the money we're giving is actually going to help, that it's actually going to be used for what we think 
that we're giving for. It's wrapped up in a lot of anxiety, the financial anxieties we all carry. At best, that's what's going on. Or, as is probably the case in some of the gifts I described earlier here, uh, out of spite we do it. There's something about the organization we weren't happy about, and so we're giving the gift, but we're going to make sure that they've got to be punished a little bit before they get their hands on it. Or somebody wants control over the resources of an organization or its agenda. They want them to do something specific, whether or not it falls within that organization's mission or not. I want control. And at its worst, it's because we want to make sure we're getting a good return on our investment. It took me very little Googling to find that there is no shortage of articles and papers from financial advisors and economists talking about charity like it's an investment like you're planning to get something out of it in the end. There is that mindset in this country. Now, most of us are not, most of us are not in that financial position to give a gift with those kind of strings attached to it. But we swim in this culture, in the United States at least, and so those things that permeate giving culture overall, they, they settle down in us and we start to internalize some of those things. And while we may not be giving $3 million to Swarthmore College, we are presented with opportunities all the time to give to, to organizations and to individuals in need of Money, because more often than not, the thing that really helps most of all is, is money. It's more likely that you're going to wind up in a, a situation like I did, where you're approached by somebody who you don't know, say, in need of cash. Who here has encountered a panhandler in the past? What do you do? Do you give or do you not? Majority of Americans do not give to panhandlers when they come across them. And the major reason that we don't give to these folks is we're worried they're going to squander the money. Big charity getting a big corporate donation might worry that Organizations are going to squander it on champagne at the board meeting or, or destination vacations for the board meeting or something like that. On that smaller level, we worry that the money is going to be squandered most likely on drugs or alcohol and or. That's one of the, the permeating myths in our culture about folks who are in that situation when we want to give to them. They are all substance abusers, and they're just going to use the money for more drugs. So either we don't give or we buy them a meal, which is great, and I'm not slamming that in any way. 
but more often than not for people in the situation of being unhomed, it's, it's cash and the immediacy that is gonna be the thing that most helps them maybe get a step out of that. And yet, as a majority, we Americans tend not to give because we have anxiety, because we don't trust the person who is receiving it. I don't know that you're gonna use it for what you just said you were gonna use it for, so I'm not gonna give it to you. And as a result of capitalism in this country, one of the other elements that creeps into our decision-making in giving at any level is what I'm gonna call paternalism. I know what you need. I know what's best for you. So I'm gonna give this to you if you do what I think is best. If you do what I think you need. And coupled with all of that, the sense of othering that comes in when we're in one of those transactional moments. It's me and the poor. It's me and the homeless. We tend to talk about these populations as if they're some sort of constant monolith in our country and not the place any one of us could wind up after one bad day. Coupling all that together, when we choose not to give in that moment, we're attaching a different set of strings to the gift that we're not giving. We're setting up a litmus test that everybody is destined to not pass as soon as it is. I don't know you're not gonna spend that on drugs and therefore I won't give. There's not even a chance for a person to prove themselves. There are strings that bind us at our heart, bind our hands together from giving what it is that we can in that moment. And it's the same if we write that back over large organizations as well. We don't trust organizations, and sometimes they deserve not to be trusted. There are plenty of nonprofits out there who have squandered and misused funds in the past, but it's an outlier, not a given. And there's a little bit of an othering that's going on, uh, it, it just facilitated by the fact that there's an organization between us and the people we want to help. There's a level of separation there that makes it easier to see it as me helping them. Let us help you help them. And there's the sense of paternalism. I know what your organization needs to do, I know what you need better than you do, and so I'm gonna give you this money, but you have to use it for rehousing dogs. I know that's not your mission, but that's what we need in this moment. So here, here is some money to find homes for dogs. We see the sense of paternalism played out in this country um, in how Different organizations receive money from, from corporate donors. A recent survey of nonprofit foundations found that white-led organizations 
are far more likely to receive corporate donations than organizations run by black people or people of color. And even more so, strings attached to the gifts will happen to organizations run by black people or people of color than they are by organizations run by white people. The strings of control are in there. And we like to think of ourselves as reasonable people. We like to think of ourselves as rational people. We like to think that when we're making these gifts and adding those strings, we are doing it because we've made an educated guess about the situation, about what is really needed right now. Without often stopping to consider, does the organization doing the work, does the person living the life perhaps know a little more about what they need in this situation than anyone else. Do we really know what we know when we're making our decisions of whether or not to give, of whether or not to give freely or not? Let's look at the issue of substance abuse and the homeless. By the best estimate researchers can figure out, at least, at least a third of the homeless population in the United States suffers from some kind of substance abuse disorder. And that's, that's not an insignificant percentage. That's one out of three. That's, that's a lot. And all by itself, you might think, yeah, that's a, that's a problem there that I don't want to add to, I don't want to support. But when you put it side by side with the statistics for the entire population, we get a completely different picture because out of the entire population of the United States, one in four people suffer from some form of substance abuse disorder. So the percentages aren't that far off. What we know for certain is that substance abuse is a major problem in this country. What we don't know is that it's corralled only in the population we call the homeless. It's more correlation than causation there. It's more a reflection in that population of the wider population we live in. Do we know what we know? And statistics aside, maybe, maybe they do use it for drugs and alcohol, maybe not, but ultimately it, it doesn't matter, at least to me, because in the long run, it's money that makes the difference in living in poverty or living out of it. It's money that makes the difference in being able to execute a program on behalf of people in need or not being able to do it. So do I pay the security deposit for the gentleman who has called me? I realized the issue in that moment was not 
or that, that what I needed to disabuse myself of in the moment was not to worry about what if they misuse this money? What if they misuse this $500? Instead, shifting my point of view to this, what if the use of this money is the turnaround this person is looking for? What if this little thing in the grand scheme of things is the thing for this one person? Because I fully remember being the dude in that position at one point. Back in the 90s, the figure was $250, not $500, adjust for inflation. $250 at one point, not long after I got out of college, was the amount that was standing between me and a downward spiral into more and more financial ruin. And because somebody who, who knew me, saw I was struggling, gave me that money as a gift. Not a loan, not to be paid back. I survived young adulthood. I was in that position. So how can I not? What's your landlord's name, I asked. And he gives me a name. And I said, all right, I'm going to be here till three. Come on by and get your check. And he brought his landlord with him, who I was able to make the check out to directly. So in the end, I knew my money was going where I hoped it would go. But even if the landlord hadn't come with them, even if I just had the name, still would have made the gift. I just put a much easier test to meet around it. Is there somebody directly who this money is going to? Instead of putting some kind of onerous stipulation on the whole thing that no one could ever meet. Because that's the deal. You cannot underestimate the impact that the little things you do have on the people and the organizations and the causes that you care about. For individuals, for organizations. And we can look at the first Obama campaign and the difference that microtransactions and microdonations made there. Little things make a difference. And yet in this country, the bigger the fund, the bigger the organization, the tighter the strings that we put on it. Because we're worried it's going to be wasted and abused. Here's a chance for a quick point of view shift for everybody. One of the biggest reasons that Americans don't give to organizations is because they want it to go to the programs and not the people in the organization. I want my money to go to the need, not to pay the guy who does the thing. People, programs, not people. 
80% of Americans believe that organizations should try to keep their overhead, including the salaries, to less than 30% of their overall budget, which, if you know anything about budgeting and about the cost of labor in this country, is, is nothing, is nothing. I want to support the programs, not the people. Even though the people are the ones making the programs happen. And organizations looking to get the money they need frequently report that they're staying under 30%. They file things under different numbers to make things look lean enough, even though they're paying more in overhead than they think they do. And because the reports say they're keeping it as lean as they possibly could, the expectation from givers is that they'll be able to keep things even leaner. And we get into this cycle that uh, the Stanford uh, Society for Social Innovation calls the nonprofit starvation cycle. They're meeting my demand to keep their overhead down so they can do even better at keeping it even more down. I want my money to go to the work and not to the people. Like the work can do itself. Like the programming of the nonprofit exists as its own discrete entity separate from the people who make it possible. Do we know what we know? Do we know better than those doing the work? The people who do do the work, I hope we can agree, deserve at the very least a living wage for the work that they do. Because why should we enforce an unsolicited vow of poverty on people just because they chose to work outside of the for-profit sector, outside of the corporate world? What it comes down to in my mind is this. If you believe in the work somebody is doing, if you believe and admire the work somebody is doing, why not just give what you can to keep it going? Yet a high percentage of Americans judge an organization on how the money is spent when the real test is what impact are they having on the world they are working in. Are they doing what they promised? Can we measure the difference that they are making in the community, in the country, in the world that they're working in? What else matters? The more conditions we put internally or externally on the gifts that we give to the organizations we believe in, the more that gift becomes more about our own insecurities or our own ego assuasion. It's a, it's a brush with our innate capitalist tendencies because that's the culture we swim in as well. What am I getting for my money? when we should take to heart that the only return on investment we should expect from the gifts we give 
for the organizations who make the world a better place is the world is a better place. Which is a return on investment for everybody. December 31st is fast arriving. I know you're going to be inundated with solicitations for charitable giving to help you with your taxes. To help you with your taxes, they're doing it for you. Let's not pretend. It's a good time to give, as any. And I'm not saying sell all you have and give it to the poor today. No, I am not Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. And honestly, that would be self-defeating, because what will we do after that? Become clients of the organizations that we're giving to. No. When you are asked, give what you can from what you have. Give from where your great gladness meets the world's deep need. Give from a place of joy. But don't wind yourselves too tightly in those strings, the strings of ego, the strings of scarcity, the strings of the need for control that we all want because we're fallible and human. Cut back the strings. Maybe so, 